So grab a hymnal again, turn to 228 in your hymn book. My faith has found a resting place. I say about Barney Johnson that he wouldn't say about himself? I can say that because he and I are longtime friends. When I say longtime friends, we started here at GCA in this building as a public church back in 2001, June of 2001. August of 2001, I had the surgery that I call the surgery that tried to kill me. And so I was out for a couple of months, and somebody had to stand here and keep us going because we were just starting. And Barney faithfully drove from Alabama week by week and stood here and kept GCA going. Nineteen years later, we're still here, largely because Barney faithfully came here and uh, helped us through a, a tough time. Barney's had a tough year. I will leave it up to him to tell his own story, but he's had a tough year. He spoke at the conference in Chattanooga a couple weeks ago. That was his return to preaching. The last time he preached prior to that, according to what he said in Chattanooga, was when he stood here in this pulpit. And when I got home from Texas and heard his message... He said, I have a little cough, so you'll have to excuse me because I have a a cough. And that turned out to be a year-long struggle. So we're just very, very glad that God has raised him up again. The great physician still at work, and we're certainly glad to see that. We're also really glad to see Faye, his wife, here with him. We have great fondness for Faye, but she's also had a really tough year taking care of him going through all that. And look, taking care of him in the best of times is, is enough work. And uh, <laughs> One of the last times that Barney was here was two years ago. Uh, let's see, September 23rd. He was here performing a wedding. Somebody got married, apparently. And he was here conducting Janine and I's wedding. And I couldn't think of anybody else that I would have do my wedding. When I called him and I said, I'm thinking about getting married, he he was kind of surprised. 
And I said, and I'm marrying a woman from Australia. And that one did it for him. He was like, how did that happen? Well, I'm here to say I still don't know how that happened. And yet, in God's good providence, two years later, you're doing good, Barney, so far. The wedding you officiated is still working. So good. So Barney Johnson is here today to preach to us. It is always a joy to hear Barney. It's always a joy to hear him tell us his perspective, what God has given him. And uh, certainly you all know through the many years of listening to him here that he is faithful to the word of God. And I know this about Barney. I can say this without reservation. He loves Jesus. And through the things he's been through, never once... In our phone calls and our talking about it, never once did he waver in his faith. And that's a testimony in and of itself. Now, he may have wavered privately, and later you can check with Faye to find out if there was any. But as far as we could see, he trusted Jesus to get him through it, and we appreciate that about him. So let's sing, O come let us adore him. And then Barney Johnson will be up here. to be back home. There you go. How's that? <laughs> yeah, I'm grateful to Jim, as always, for allowing me to stand. Let me say thank you all for your prayers over this past year. I left here coughing, and um, it never got better till they were putting uh, chemo in my port. And I mean, the day they sort of did that, the day the coughing stopped. Up until then, I had coughed coughed every day, all day. It was was bad. It was bad. But God is good. God is faithful. And I'm grateful that he allowed me to come through that and uh, give me a little bit more to add to my testimony about how good he is. Because he is a good God. He's a great God, and if you hadn't heard me say it, you're about to hear me say it, that one thing I know is you cannot trust God, but you better. <laughs> you just when you think you got him figured out, and 
which way he's going to lead your life and take your life. He'll up and next thing you know, you've been diagnosed with cancer and your life goes a totally different way. But in all that, you still better trust him. Amen. You know it? You still better trust him. So I'm grateful. Thank you all for all your prayers and cards and, and for the calls. It's, it's, it's been a different year, but uh, God has let me know that people do care about you and when they don't have to. You know, and, and letting people help you is a hard thing for me. The hardest thing for me was letting people cut my grass. <laughs> yeah. That's, that was that was a toughie for me. It's, man, that was real hard for me. I mean, I look at it and the line is going. You know, that just that drives me crazy. So, but uh, but now I'm cutting grass again and everything needs to be cut right now two times because so, it's that high. Yes, yeah, all the rain and stuff. I'm just grateful that he's brought me as far as he has, and I I thank you for your prayers. Now. I uh, mentioned I was coughing last time here. I'm coughing again. Then I'm here this time I'm coughing. But the cough is a little different. The oncologist told me that now when I'm coughing, chances are that what's happening is the dead mass, cancer-free, the mass is still there, but the dead mass is, is pieces of it are, is breaking off, and that is the only way for it to leave the body. So it's a good cough, I hope. I praise the good cough. I'm grateful this time for the cough. All right, grateful this time for the cough and, and pray he'll, he'll keep me. Well, let's go to his word. And I'm grateful for my wife being here with me. And I don't know what Jim is talking about. I'm a sweetheart all the time. All the time. All the time. Yes, indeed. I was fine. She never had a problem with me at all till she went and cut my grass. <laughs> till she tried to cut my grass and then we had issues. <laughs> no, she's, 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 she's the best wife in the world. I wouldn't have put up with me. Let's put it that way. So, so all right. We're in Jonah. The book of Jonah. The first chapter, and this is going to be English Standard Version translation. Jonah, first chapter, fourth verse, and then we're going to skip down to the 11th to 17th verse. And then you don't have to turn there, but I'll read it in Romans 5 and 1. The fourth verse says, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then down verse 11. Then they said unto him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and herald me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from raging. Then the men feared the Lord, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And then Romans 5 and 1 reads, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. For a topic, if you want to have one, what shall we do to make God calm down? What shall we do? What can we do to make God calm down? Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for the day. Father, we ask your blessings right now on this preaching hour that you bless me to open up to your people, the scripture, as you've opened it up to me, and that we will all leave here, Lord, 
encouraged and edified and, and glorifying your name for what you've done in your word and through Jesus Christ. We thank you for the day. We thank you for this hour. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What shall we do to make God calm down? We have, in our natural sinful state, we have a severe problem. And this problem is greater than any a living man physically, that is, could possibly have. It's, it's greater than financial problems uh, uh, most of us, if you're like me, you've, you face a stack of bills which we wish we didn't have, and it's hard to, to make ends meet. We, we let one slide this month so we can catch up on the one we let slide last month, and, and then on top of that, as we just discussed, you get sick. You know, we have to go to the doctor. Kids get sick and they have to go to the doctor, and while you're sitting in the doctor, they tell you need, they need this and that for school. You know, it's, just, it's, it's always something. Then on your way home from the doctor, the car breaks down. You know, this is just the way it goes. And when you get home, if you like our house right now, it is probably, what, 85, 89 degrees because the air conditioner broke. All right, so we hope for that to be fixed. But it's always something, some financial thing. Then uh, uh, on the other hand of that, you may have the problem of you have too much money. You, you have to pay Uncle Sam those taxes, and you're looking for the loopholes and, and things, and you, you worry about if the stock market is going to crash, or, or if you're a manager, you're wondering about your job security, uh, a VP or CEO. You, you're wondering about financially how those things affect you. And, and yet with all this stuff going on financially in our life, we still have a greater problem. It's greater than the physical problem. Straight in sickness and disease, uh, heart attacks and strokes are, are the leading cause of death in, 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 in this country. And it's been treated more, I guess, than any other sickness. And, and cancer of all sorts, as, as we talked again, as we talked earlier, are eating, eating away at the entire human race. And HIV and AIDS have, uh, have the entire world in pandemonium. And we, we're afraid to drink the water. We're afraid to eat the food. We're afraid to breathe the air. And, and because we know sooner or later, somebody's going to issue a report that that peanut butter that you bought from Walmart Publix Whatever else, the food city, wherever you bought it from is contaminated. And all this going on, there's still a greater problem. A problem is greater than any emotional problem that ever tore at the heart of man. It's greater than the sorrow, grief we feel as we watch God and his sovereign rule of the universe take the lives of tens of thousands of people in earthquakes and famines and and hurricanes and tornadoes and floods. And, and yes, it's even greater than the grief of those who lose loved ones in those situations. And not to mention the, the lives he's uh, taken in car accidents and shootings and, and disease. And, and then just plain old living. Just plain old living. It's greater than the emotional anguish caused by the death of a loved one. Divorce has, has shaken the lives of many of families. It, it, it causes feelings of failure, uh, of lack of self-esteem and hatred. And, and some people never even fully recover from divorce. And sometimes it places the children, in, if there are any, in awkward positions of having to choose between mama and daddy. And, 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 it's, and it's emotional unsettling for everybody. And yet, beloved, there is a greater problem. So great is this problem, if all the aforementioned was happening to just one man, all those things would be as a grain of sand to the sun. For this problem is so huge, it's so enormous that it reaches from the very depths of hell to the third heaven, even to the throne of God. What could be so severe? What, what, what's so great, uh, a million times more disastrous than the sufferings of Job? What could be that great? The problem is God is at war with fallen man. 
No financial, physical, emotional problem can compare to the plight of one whom God has drawn his sword of wrath of judgment against. There's no comparison there. If God is against you, you've got a real problem. You've got a real problem. All the wars of all the ages are but a short battle when one thinks of the war that's raging between God and sinners. And in all I worry about nuclear holocaust and the third world war, it was still not as great as that ultimate destruction of this world that God will cause according to Revelation. That all this stuff happens and goes on. Uh, we may want to cry that God is unjust, he's unfair, but that he allows it to happen to a sinful world is just with God. And, and even personally, we, uh, the war rages between uh, uh, in believers, in the, the flesh and the spirit, the old nature and the new nature. If there is a war within the believers, in, in you and me, if you believe in Christ, if the war is going on within us, uh, when we would do, do good, evil is always present. If that, if that war is going on within us, just imagine the war that rages between God and one who has not confessed the hope in Jesus Christ. Jonah was a man at war with God. He was one in rebellion against the revealed will of God. God told Jonah to go to Nineveh, and Jonah headed in the opposite direction to Tarsus. And whenever, whenever you have a conflicting of opinions, uh, there is a possibility that war is going to break out. The fight's going to start somewhere. You know, I sit this way, you sit that way, and we ain't agreeing on much. And if, if I stick around you too long, somebody's going to get popped. Uh, you know. Verse 4 says, But the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea, and there was a mighty tempest in the sea, so the ship was to be broken. Now, it's not like this was a, you know, a battleship or cruise ship. It was probably a, a freighter carrying goods to Tarsus, and, and I'm sure it was nowhere the size of today's freighter. It was probably pretty tough sailing on a clear day. So why would God go pick on this little cargo ship with seemingly innocent passengers and Jonah? That's like the whole nation deciding to wage war against Smyrna. I mean, what, what kind of war is that, you know, what kind of battle is that going to be? The question I have, is the attack justified? Why has God declared war on this ship and Jonah? And similarly, why has God declared war on sinners? What did Jonah and what does every sinner do what? What is this rebellion? How, what is it that caused God' wrath to fall on Jonah and the ship? Jonah and every sinner rebelled, or is rebelling against God's authority. There's a conflict with who is the boss, who's in charge. That was the temptation in the garden. This is it's the original problem we've had. Satan says, you shall be as God, uh, implicit in that, and you're able to eat whatever you want to eat, anytime you want to. Even that tree that God said you can't eat from, you can eat from. I don't know if they still say this, but in today's language, I know you used to say it a few years ago, he would have said something like, God's not the boss of you. <laughs> yeah. You can eat what you want when you want to. And we still have this problem today, beloved. There, there is always, however slight it may be, at some time or another, resentment for one in authority over us. It may be just a slight thing. It, it may be your boss walking up to tell you he's giving you a raise. But just for that instant, there he is. Now, what does he want? <laughs> or oh, what does she Just Just for that instant, you know. And we don't, we don't like people telling us what to do. We don't like our supervisors, our spouses, our brothers, sisters, mother, fathers, friends, teachers, pastors. And certainly, we don't like God telling us what to do. 
We want autonomy. We want autonomy. Uh, uh, insist on controlling our own destinies. And, but there is no escaping the authority of God. You will. You will do what he says. You will do what he said. Then Jonah and sinners disagree with God's affections. The Pharisees and, in fact, the whole nation of Israel missed the Messiah because he didn't come like they thought he would come. He, he wasn't associating himself with the right people. Moving the right cycle. He, he was always eating and talking to prostitutes and tax collectors and, and calling those who they thought he should be associated with, calling the scribes and Pharisees names. You know, uh, he, he just wasn't, you know, moving in the right circles to, to, to be king of the Jews. Now, he could be somebody else, but king of the Jews, you need the, the circles you need to move in need to be better. He wasn't saving the right people. He, he, he's not loving who we think he ought to love. You know, uh, our elect is not his elect. <laughs> and sinners get mad at God for choosing to love some people and not all people. And some of those people are people we don't like. And the problem uh, of those who fight so hard against this doctrine of unconditional election and lemon atonement is is the fear that he hasn't been elected or atoned for. Uh, He or she feels safe as long as they can feel that Christ died for everybody. You know, it's universal. And and no matter what's, what's going on, you know, in the end, in the end of this thing, God's not going to send anybody to hell. We're all going to heaven because Jesus died for everybody. But to embrace the doctrines of grace, one must admit that Christ didn't die for everybody in the whole wide world. He didn't do that. Therefore, there is a chance that some members of your family may be lost. There's that chance. And don't, don't, don't get upset with the that. You keep praying. I'm not God. We're not God. We don't know who's in the, who, who is the elect. Pray for everybody that they are in God's number and God will save them in due time. Amen? Amen. Amen. And I'm grateful that God has revealed the doctrines of grace to me. But but even if he hadn't, even if universal atonement were true, then I still would say that he died for me. Even if that were true. It's not. And if we say it is limited, which it is, I'm sorry, y'all. But if he died for one person, he died for me. Sorry. Sorry. You know, I I, I hope you all have good church. And when rapture happens, I'm gone. And uh, I'll pray for you all. Me and Jesus will take you. But but the the thing is, if you're saved, if you're saved, the doctrine matters, but it doesn't matter. That's what I'm getting at. It matters, but it doesn't matter because you know he died for you. And we just sang it this morning. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Yeah. The argument is he died for me. So God's not saving who we think he ought to save. Uh, we would save all the good people, all, our, all the members of our family and, you know, and all our friends. And that's, that's a real issue. That's a real issue. And so Jonah is mad with God for giving Nineveh a chance to repent. Jonah hated the Ninevites. He he didn't think they were worthy of of saving. And God, for some reason, has chosen to give them a chance to repent of their sin. And Jonah can't stand that. So Jonah rebels. Jonah 4, 1 1 and 2 says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. He was very angry. And he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, uh, was not this my sin when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before unto Tarsus, for I knew that thou art gracious and merciful and slow to anger and great kindness and repentance, uh, 
deal of evil. So I, I didn't want you to bless them. That's why I didn't want to go. I knew what kind of God you were. I knew you were a God of forgiveness. I knew you were a, 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 a God, a, if, if you allow me, I hate using this term, but if you allow me to use it, God of second chances. Let me just use it this one time. <laughs> I, 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 knew, I knew you were that type of God, and I knew if I go down there and preach to these people, they were going to repent, and you were going to forgive them, and everything's going to be all right, and that's not what I want you to do. <laughs> Jonah had a problem because God was loving people. Jonah didn't want them to love. Then, this is this one's sort of funny. It, uh, it, it's sort of serious, but it's sort of funny. Jonah denies the attributes of God, and every sinner does the same thing. It's funny, but it's actually the saddest point of all. Jonah had no idea, even though he said all that, by his action, he revealed he has no idea who he's dealing with. Jonah didn't realize what a privilege it was that God asked him, that God told him to go to Nineveh. Out of all the people he could have appointed, he chose Jonah to go to Nineveh to preach. Jonah, uh, Jonah thought God was going to be shocked when he found out that he sailed for Tarsus and not Nineveh. Like God, like God's going to be working, waiting at the dock at Nineveh and, and everybody off the boat and God's going to look around and say, well, uh, well where's Jonah? <laughs> he actually thinks, uh, we actually think our sins catch God off guard. That God went to sleep and how, while we're sleeping, we sinned and, and God woke up shocked that we had sinned. Adam thought uh, God would be shocked when, when he found he was naked and, and went in the bushes and hid. But God knew Adam was going to fall even before he made him. And we need to get through our heads that we serve an omniscient God. He knows everything there is to know about everything there is to know, beloved. He didn't acquire his knowledge. He, uh, he's always had it. Nobody's taught him. You know the verses well, Isaiah 40, 13 and 14. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or been his counselor, had taught him? With whom took he counsel? And, and who instructed him and taught him in the path of judgment and taught him knowledge and showed to him the way of understanding? The answer, of course, to that is nobody. Hebrews 6 and 13 says, For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself. God said, Abraham, I'm going to do this for you, and I'll swear by... Wait a minute. <laughs> I, I am God. I am the greatest thing which I can swear by. So he said, he swore by himself. Jonah assumes he's slick enough to get away from God without God seeing him. You know, he had to think that God wasn't in Tarshish. I mean, why sell the Tarshish? Why, why not sell the Smyrna? You know, or somewhere in that mind, he had to think that God wasn't in, in, in Tarshish. He should have talked with David. And David said, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I say the darkness will hide me, it won't do any good because darkness and light are the same to you. There is simply no escaping the all-seeing eye of God. He's everywhere at the same time. Jonah also assumed that God is without power to do anything about his rebellion. In a sense, Jonah says, so what is God going to do if I don't go to Nineveh? If, if I don't go, in, what, what's God going to do? What, what can God do? To sin, one must be convinced his or herself that God is without power to punish sin. If, beloved, if we really, really knew who we were dealing with and dealing with, and dealing with an all-powerful God, an omnipotent God, we would act differently. We would act differently. If a sinner knew that God has the power to destroy both body and soul in hell, he would bow to him immediately. Yes. Immediately. 
But we think God is powerless. Uh, we think his hands are tied and only we can untie them. And sadly, really sadly, this is what is being preached today. That God can't do nothing unless we let him. He's powerless to move unless we allow him to move. And folks say that they don't think that through. So if if God is supposed to be omnipotent, okay, and he can't do unless we allow him to do, who's really the omnipotent one? We are. Uh, Right? Isn't that plain as a nose on your face? You know, it it ought to be. But but, but beloved, we serve an all-powerful God. He has power to execute his will to the fullness. Nebuchadnezzar says it this way in uh, Daniel 4 and 35. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he does according to his will in armies of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? The Lord is a mighty God, and Jonah and had the audacity to rebel against the living, holy, sovereign ruler of the universe. And, and so cocky is Jonah that he goes to sleep. In all the TV shows I watch, I've never seen a thief who is stealing, who, who is robbing, or, or, or someone who is murdering anything. I never see them just be so cocky that they just fall asleep at the scene of the crime. That just doesn't happen because you know there is an authority greater than you who has power over you, who has power to cast you into jail. But Jonah, for some reason, he forgets who called him. He forgets that the omnipotent God called him. And and what, what can he do? I'm on my way to Tarsus. I'll just go to sleep. So all that said. God's attack on this ship is justified. God meant to get Jonah, and he means to get every sinner that will not bow to his will. Now, when Strategic Air Command uh, picks up a jet approaching U.S. airspace without permission, they scramble jet fighters and, and to intercept the, the jet and and, and they, they're there to do two things. First of all, they're going to warn the pilot uh, of the, his encroachment and the approaching U.S. airspace and to turn back. And if the pilot will not heed the warning, then they are commanded to shoot the plane down. When a sinner rebels against the living God, uh, he is saying, as Satan said, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars. I will be like the most high. And that's beloved is treading in God's airspace. And when you do that, God is going to unleash the forces of the universe to shoot you down. And that's what happened in Genesis 11. You remember that story over there in the Tower of Babel? You know, they said, you know what? Let's, let's build a tower that will reach into the heavens. And God looked at it and said, you know, they're getting carried away here. And he confuses their language. And the tower is never finished. So God has a way of bringing you down. If you want to rebel, you can rebel. But I promise you, uh, God's not going to let it slide. As the saying is, you may get by, but you won't get away. That's it. <laughs> so God attacks a ship with a storm of wind. And the crew members cast lots to see which God is responsible for the storm. And the lot fell on Jonah. So what I want to know is, what God did they think was going to answer? You know, what, what God did they really think was going to answer? Since there's only one true living God, that, I mean, let's see which God is going to answer who's causing this storm. I mean, there's only one God that can answer. And he's the living God. And so when they did this, the actual lot fell on Jonah, and they asked him who was responsible uh, <laughs> Uh, for all the trouble they had in Jonah, told him where he, was, where he was from, what he was doing. And the Bible says they were exceedingly afraid. And no doubt being sailors, they had docked at many ports and heard the stories of how the God of Israel fought for them and how he crushed their enemies. And, and no doubt having heard these stories, they felt the same fate awaited them. 
So can you imagine picking a fight with a professional boxer uh, and finding out he's a professional boxer after you start the fight? <laughs> you know, that's, that's, that's basically what these sailors do. They allow Jonah passage on the ship, and John, Jonah tells him, we'll get to that in a minute, Jonah tells him that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm fleeing from the Lord. And they say, hey, okay, yeah, you know, if, you, if your God is like our God, he ain't going to do anything anyway. Yeah. So, so they, they, he flees and he heads to Tarsus and then they find out that uh, Jonah goes into a little bit more detail. He says, it's, it's, my God is the God of Israel. It's, it's, uh, basically, they say, y'all, we've messed up. we messed up. So they aren't innocent. They aren't innocent. The point is these sailors become guilty by association. They become accomplices in Jonah's rebellion, further justifying God's right to attack the whole ship. Jonah's rebellion becomes uh, the sin of the whole crew. Beloved, here we have the doctrine of imputation. Though our father Adam sins, we are guilty by association because we are his posterity, born of his seed. He's our federal head. When Adam sinned, we sinned. What the scriptures say, wherefore is one by, by one man sinned into the world and death passed on all men, for all have sinned. Yes, we are sinners, but we are sinners because Adam was a sinner first. So this is, this is where I want to get to that question that they asked Jonah. What shall we do unto thee that the sea may be calm unto us? Put the words, what can we do to make God calm down? What will stop the tempest from raging against us? What was what will stop the sword of God's judgment from falling on us? How can we be justified? How can we be acquitted of our sins? And Jonah says, Throw me overboard, and the sea will be calm to you. Beloved, sin has to be paid for. And either you got to pay the price yourself or someone else has to pay it for you. Then, uh, not only does the sin has to be paid for, but it has to be an acceptable offering. Just can't be anybody. The storm never would have stopped raging if one of the other guys had, had volunteered to sacrifice himself for the rest of the crew. In this case, it had to be Jonah. It had to be Jonah. He was the perfect sacrifice. In this situation, only Jonah overboard would satisfy the wrath of God and stop the tempest from raging. And, and, and only way to end the war raging between God and man was a sacrifice of a perfect lamb without spot or blemish. God requires the blood of a sinless, perfect man for remission of sin. That is the only offering acceptable to God for a sin of man. Uh, scripture says without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Now, now notice what happens in the text. The text says they rode hard to bring it to land, bring the ship to land, but they could not for the sea wrought and was tempestuous. In other words, they tried to make it to shore, but they couldn't because the harder they tried to make it, the worse the storm grew. In a sense, by rowing, they were treading in God's airspace again. Beloved, we'll never make it into the kingdom on our works, on our own works. We will never satisfy the wrath of God with our own righteousness, no matter how, how hard we row. We'll never do it. It was a noble deed to try to save Jonah's life, but, but God wasn't impressed. Nor is he impressed with our works. I don't care how much blood you give to the blood bank. I don't know how, how many uh, clothes you carry to the Salvation Army. I don't know how, I care how, how many meals you feed to the hungry and everything. God's not impressed. He's not impressed. What God is looking for, what God requires is the blood sacrifice of a perfect lamb. That impresses him. That impresses him. So, realizing they couldn't make it, they cast Jonah overboard, and the text says the sea ceased its raging. God is not at war with them anymore. His wrath has been satisfied. And, beloved, 
you know this is a blessed type of Christ. From the sin and fall of Adam through all the law and the prophets, and man tried to roll to shore, but he couldn't make it. He started with fig leaves and ended up with the righteousness of the Pharisees, but, but the wrath of God hadn't been satisfied. He would take the blood of a spotless lamb, one born of an incorruptible seed, a perfect man. It would take Christ. He would have to be crucified. In a sense, Christ would have to be thrown overboard. Isaiah 53 and 11 says, He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. When they threw Christ overboard, when he was crucified, he carried the iniquities of his people overboard with him. When they threw John overboard, he became the propitiation for the rest of the crew. First John 2 and 2 says, And he, Christ, is propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but the whole world. I know what I said it previously, and y'all know what that means. I'm sure he's taught you well. The whole world does not mean everyone in the world. Okay, we won't go through that, but you, we, we know that. Amen? Amen? Amen. The Bible says the sea ceased from raging. God called off the attack. The sailors had liberty to sail on freely to Tarsus. The scripture says, now we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And God is not at war with us anymore. The tempest is quiet. The wind is calm. We have peace with God. And verse 14 says, The sailors cried unto the Lord. I said, Lord, now let us perish for taking Jonah's life. Uh, don't hold us accountable for killing him. In the first place, we have already established Jonah wasn't innocent. He had rebelled against the living God, and so he was thrown overboard for his own transgression, and those of uh, the sailor granted him passage. Uh, it was seen the, the type of Christ breaks down here. Uh, but Christ, if you allow this, Christ didn't die an innocent man. Though he had no sin of his own, when he willingly took on our sins on himself, he became a guilty man. 2 Corinthians 5 and 21 says it this way, For he hath made himself to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. In the second place, this cry unto the Lord is almost exactly what Pilate says when he washes his hand in front of the I'm innocent of this blood of this, this just person. And a, a bit of irony here that Pontius, it means marine or one belonging to the sea. Isn't that interesting that, uh, that his name in a sense means sailor and Jonah's name means, means dove. So again, you have this sailor casting this piece overboard. So I thought that was a little bit interesting. So here's the point I want to make about 14, 15. They called Jonah innocent, yet when they couldn't prevail against the storm, they were quick to cast Jonah overboard. And this is the iniquity of the human heart. He will, we will do anything and everything, sacrifice the lives of others to save our own neck. That's what the crew did and what Pilate did also. John 19, 12 and 13 says, And from thenceforth Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art no friend of Caesar. Uh, whoever maketh himself king speaketh against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus forth and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called pavement. And in the Hebrew is called Gabbatha. God had granted Pilate the authority to condemn or equip Christ. And though he knew Christ was innocent of any sin of his own, he handed him over to be crucified to remain friends with Caesar. That's what we do. That's what we do. And I, I, I pray, beloved, if it comes down to that, if it comes down to, to me in, in the long run denying Christ or saving my life, that I will give up my life. If it means me being friends over here, if I have to deny that I'm a Christian to be friends over here, then I don't want to be friends over there. I don't think there's anything that's possible that would make me deny Jesus Christ. This body of flesh is precious to us. 
we, we like to feed it the choices states. We like to dress it up real good. Um, I like my new suit, by the way. Yeah, it's a new suit. We make provisions for it. We like to indulge it in, in all its sinful desires. Uh, uh, we, we, we love ourselves. And we're going to make sure we survive. Caiaphas in the 11th chapter of John says this way when when the Pharisees called him to the Sanhedrin to see what they was going to do, he told them, he said, don't you know anything? It's better for one man to die than for the whole nation. The Philippian jailer over in, in Acts, he was ready to take his life because he was sure that all the prisoners were gone. He's ready, ready to take his life, and that all the prisoners are gone doesn't mean I'm going to lose my life too. But beloved, that's that's what that's where we are. We we love ourselves. We love ourselves so much. Whatever the cost, uh, he he figures, hey, I'm going to die, so I might as well kill myself. I just mentioned Peter saving his own neck. You know, Lord, I'll go with you. No, Jesus, me and you. To the end, Peter said, let me tell you what, Peter, I've already prayed for you. Satan desires you to sift your sweet. And when you come forth, I want you to strengthen your brother. You know, Peter's mouth said, no, no, that's not going to happen. I'm, 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 I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you, Jesus. You know, if, if, all, if all these other guys forsake you, I'm with you. And not only did Peter deny him three times, but if you look at that passage, the one time he denied him, it was to a little girl. Another thing I want you to see there is the things we do, we do purely uh, for a purely selfish reason. God's sovereign will be done even when we attempt our own self-preservation. Okay. Don't think because you're doing what you think you want to do, that you're somehow, again, it goes back to God being who he is, that somehow you, you bypass the sovereign will of God. It's like, aha, I got past God, and I did this my way. As, who was it, Frank Sinatra saying that song? I did it my way. Even Frank's way is in the will of God. So what did the sailors say in the last part of verse 14? Don't hold us accountable for it. No, thou, O oh Lord, has done as it pleases thee. Sailor said, don't, 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 blame, don't blame us, Lord, because this, this is your doing. Now, if you listen to the sermon from the conference, I started with a preface saying, because of the nature of the text, don't try this at home. Okay? Just because... You know eventually that it is the sovereign will of God. Say, well, if I go out and sin, then God can bring me back from the sin. He can restore me and I have a greater testimony. Don't try that. All right. Don't 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 try that at home. Don't don't say, well, uh, how can God charge us for casting the guy over overboard when he came after the guy we cast overboard? He, he's doing what he wants to do, so no matter what I do, it's still in the will of God, so I might as well go and do what I want to do. Don't beloved, it. Do not try that. To that, Paul said, so we continue to sin that grace may abound. He says, God forbid. Don't, don't do that. And then, and then the question they ask over in Romans is, well, well, if it is God's will, he's doing what he wants to do, even though he's using us, then why does God charge us? Why would he condemn us for tossing Jonah overboard? Why would we be condemned for killing Christ when we needed Christ to die to be our Savior? Why, why, would, God, why would God hold us accountable for the death of Christ if that's what he wants to do to accomplish salvation? And Jesus says of, of Judas, the son of man goes about, he's betrayed. He said, woe be, but woe be unto that man that betrayed him. Just because God uses your sins to accomplish his will doesn't mean you ought to sin to accomplish his will. Do you understand that? Do you understand that? And just because they crucified Christ, and yes, 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 beloved, it was, it was God's intent from all of creation. 
But don't think that those who crucified Christ got off because the scripture says they did what they wanted to do. God had to kill Jesus if we were going to be redeemed. We can never in a million years in this lifetime crucify Christ enough to satisfy the wrath of his journey toward us. That's why I'm pleased God, I'm that's why I'm pleased God to bruise him himself. It was God who did it. For only God knew uh, his justice was satisfied and, and only he could satisfy his wrath. He's satisfied. He's not at war with us anymore. Uh, we have peace with God because Christ was thrown overboard. What can be done to have peace with God? The answer is nothing by us. There's nothing, nothing we can do to have peace with God. God has to do it all himself. Beloved. Salvation is of the Lord. Jesus was God's Christ. He was God's perfect lamb. And, and for some reason, and, and I'm, I'm almost through, some reason we have in our mind that, uh, and, and, and even, even, even in this sermon, you may be under the impression that God is, he's this tyrant. He's going after Jonah. Uh, he has Jonah thrown over, but he, you know, he causes havoc on the sea just to get to Jonah. And, and, and yes, that's all true. We sort of have this feeling that God the Father is this tyrant, this, this, this mean person of the Trinity, and, and that Jesus is the lovely, lovely one. You know, that, that when you talk about love, you talk about Jesus. But what about the Father? Well, I don't want to talk about him. No, I've seen what he's done. You know, but beloved, we must not forget that Jesus of Nazareth is God's Christ. It's God the Father who sends the Son. Beloved, is that, if that's not love, is that's not a gracious act, I, I don't know what is. He didn't have to do it at all. God is a God of love. He sent his only begotten Son into the world to die for a bunch of folk who did not know him, who did not care about him, yet he did that. He had his own son thrown overboard. He had his own son crucified that we might live. And so as a result, God saw the sacrifice. He was pleased with the perfect sacrifice and the sea has come to us. Now we can sail on home in a manner of speaking. You know, might get a little bumpy along the way, but the surety is we will reach home. We will reach home. Amen. 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 God bless you.